The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. This president has pledged to do all he can to ensure that we have an ample supply of oil. The problem was that we continue to talk to Manchin like he was serious. He was not. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. Democrats, because of redistricting, being forced to run against each other and neither one of them being willing to step down as incumbents. Those expectations set by the progressive left, they could never deliver the votes for those. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. It is shaping up to be another busy week in our nation's capital. Lawmakers are simultaneously working on passing billions in funding for semiconductors, while Democrats see if they can salvage a deal that has gone from an all-inclusive package to a much narrower bill mostly focused on health care issues. I'm Emily Wilkins, in today for Joe Matthew. In just a minute, we're going to be joined by Congressman Andy Levin, a Democratic lawmaker from Michigan, to break down some of the latest in Congress, as well as his upcoming primary. Really, really interesting one there. Well, joining me now is Congressman Andy Levin. He is a Michigan Democrat, my home state, um, and he's got a number of different things going on right now. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us today. I wanted to kind of just jump in with the fallout from last Friday news on the reconciliations bill, that package that Democrats are trying to move, initially called Build Back Better. I know it's got a couple different nicknames now, uh, but Senator Joe Manchin says he's not going to be able to support climate provisions in the bill, as well as additional taxes. I just wanted to start by getting your perspective here. Are you willing to go forward on a bill without those key provisions? Well, we'll have to see where where we are when the ink dries on the negotiations. There's no question, Emily, that the health care measures are incredibly important, and I strongly support them. But, you know, Joe Manchin truly is Lucy. He just keeps moving the football and moving the football every time the rest of the team runs up to kick it. And, I mean, come on. He's he's changed his position over and over and over. He's gone back on promises over and over and over. So I support those health care measures. Let's see what they really look like when... Uh, the negotiations are concluded because I don't have a lot of trust left for Joe Manchin. I mean, what does this mean, though, going going forward? I mean, I know that you don't trust Joe Manchin, but you have to have his vote if you want to move this reconciliation package forward. So what's the game plan for Democrats who do want to see something pass, I know, uh, but are, are sort of working with this, uh, you know, as you mentioned, someone who's moved the football away at the last minute a number of times? Right. Well, so, I mean, we have to see, we've said for a long time that we have to see what 50 senators will agree upon, all 50 who caucus with Democrats, and then that's what we can pass. I mean, what this says in the bigger picture is that America's facing a huge crisis. And in earlier times when we faced huge crises, like in the 30s and the 60s, FDR had huge majorities in the House and the Senate. LBJ had huge majorities in the House and the Senate, and it wasn't a bunch of handhold, you know, bipartisan handholding. Democrats 
past the architecture of our democracy that we take for granted today in the 30s and the 60s. The Fair Labor Standards Act, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. And so right now we have a huge crisis of income and wealth inequality. We've got a health crisis and a global economic crisis. And we're frying our planet. (laughs) We've got to stop doing that. And America needs to lead the way so we capture the technology and the great jobs that come with leading an economic change. So we, Joe Manchin, no Joe Manchin, we have to find a way to move ahead and lead on climate change policy. And, you know, I'm going to keep fighting to do that. What does that look like? I mean, right now, is this up to executive actions from the Biden administration? It's partly up to executive actions, and it's partly bucking history and making having a clear message to the American people that your choice is being made super obvious. Do you want to vote in enough Democrats so we can move this country forward? Or do you want to have the party that ha- doesn't want to do anything on climate change or not nearly enough on sensible gun reform that doesn't want women to have control over their own bodies or their own decisions, America really has an amazing choice to make in November. And we have to send the message very clearly that if you want an economy that works for working folks, you got to get enough Democrats in there so we can move forward on climate change policy and create all these great jobs so, that would come about if we lead on electric vehicles, lead on offshore wind, mm-hmm. onshore wind, solar. So basically, and all this the all technology. this all comes down to the election. Then this is sort of that Democrats need to message and really get out to voters that if they want these things in the policy to happen, that they need to not just elect Democrats but elect more Democrats. Is that going to work? Because I know a lot of Democratic voters they're frustrated with their party right now. They're frustrated for the lack of things that they're going that they're seeing getting done. Is it enough to tell them to go out and vote? I think there's two. Well, no, it's it's several things. One is it's more effective messaging, uh, and but the second thing is you mentioned it. Yes, we need our president to take more executive action. Forgive fifty thousand dollars of student loan debt. Uh, really move forward on whatever executive actions he can take on uh, climate change policy. Um, so there's there's executive actions he can take across a number of areas that will really help send the message to the American people that the president's on your side, the Democrats are on your side, the Republicans are sticking with this idea of trickle-down economics, where you just make it good for the billionaires and the huge corporations, and somehow that's going to benefit everybody. By now, we all know that just does not work. We've got to raise wages, free up Americans to form unions and bargain collectively, uh, you know, we have to have health care for everybody in this country. And I'm, I'm telling you, Emily, if we send strong, clear messages on kitchen table uh, issues, the American people uh, will vote for us. Speaking about unions, um, I wanted to get a little into the wonky weeds, uh, but there is something really big that's actually happening on Capitol Hill today. For the first time, congressional staffers are protected if they want to form a union. So you've seen eight offices today. Staffers from eight offices come forward, openly say that they're beginning the process of union unionization. This is something really brand new for the Hill. We haven't seen this done this before. Uh, but Congressman Levin, I know that you obviously have a past uh, as a labor organizer. 
your office is one of the eight that went ahead and filed that petition today to begin the unionization process. And I just wanted to get a sense what you think the change that would come to Congress would be. Obviously, this is an office by office process. Not every office, not every staffer will be unionized, but there will be some unions out there. How is that going to change what we see from Congress? Right. Well, and in that fantastic uh, account you just gave, Emily, you just missed one thing. It's my resolution that makes this possible. How <laughs> could I forget? How could I forget? <laughs> well, and in my, you know, I wanted to let you say that, Congressman. I wanted to. to there you go. <laughs> and, and, you know, if you want to talk about my primary race, I mean, there's a huge difference. between That's, me that's and my coming opponent. up next. I'm, Focus on the unions I'm, right now. I promise we'll get to your primary. <laughs> no problem. But I'm the, you know, I'm the shop steward of the Congress. And I'm so proud that we passed my resolution. Emily, this is huge. It's huge because just it's a big workforce. 9,100 people work in the U.S. House of Representatives in our district offices, our D.C. offices, and our committees, and then the, the, the offices like the leadership offices who are covered by this. Secondly, it's huge because this is the Congress of the United States. And gosh darn it, if Democrats want to say, we're going to help free up workers to have more power, more voice and say and in the economy and in society, we better walk the walk and give the opportunity to our own workers. And so I'm, today, we passed my resolution in May. Today, July 18th, 2022, is the day that these rights took effect. And boom, as you said, eight offices, including my own, the workers uh, filed to be recognized and to formalize their right to have collective bargaining. And this will make Congress a better place to work. We will have less turnover, more happiness. These young people generally who work for us, they work so hard. They make democracy function literally. They draft the bills. They talk to the constituents. And so they really deserve to have a fair workplace, a just workplace, and I'm I'm just so proud of them for, you know, standing up for their own rights as they have in, in getting this far. So it's a really big day. So, you know, a lot of people are saying this is the biggest change today is the biggest change in working conditions on Capitol Hill in 30 years. And I'm just proud to have played some little part in it. Yeah, we'll definitely see what what the next steps are. Certainly, we're we're beginning today on what's going to be a a, a process uh, which we will continue to follow. I did say that I would get to your primary. I absolutely want to. You're in a competitive primary, one of the few in the nation where you have two incumbent Democrats going up against each other. You and your colleague Haley Stevens. Uh, you've recently ran a couple ads calling her out for changing her position on Medicare, accepting money from a PAC that's also donating to Republicans. And I'm just sort of wondering why why this strategy now? Why have negative ads on a colleague that, that you had a working relationship with in the past? Well, so we're, you know, the, Michigan's losing a seat, so we're kind of mushed together in this mm-hmm. district, and so the voters have to choose. And I'm, I think, how do they decide? And I'm just drawing a contrast. I mean, I've been backed by Cecile Richards and Heather Booth and others because of my really strong activism on reproductive rights over a long period of time. I've been backed by Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders because I didn't flip-flop on Medicare for All. I'm for healthcare as a universal human right. I've been backed by every environmental group, all 11 that have endorsed in this race, because I am one of the co-sponsors of the Green New Deal. I've written climate change legislation uh, with Sherrod Brown, Mm -hmm. with Elizabeth Warren and others. So I will absolutely draw a contrast so the voters can figure out 
who's their champion. And what I'm saying is I'm the principal candidate who's not going to take money from special interests that back insurrectionist Republicans. It's not that they back Republicans, Emily. It's that they back Republicans who voted to end our democracy. I just won't be part of that. And I'm the progressive candidate, and I'm the pragmatic candidate who gets a lot done. I mean, GovTrack ranked me number four in the freshman class after our first term in terms of leadership, and they ranked her 71 out of 96. So I, I just think that when you're running for office, mm-hmm. you have to help the voters see what the differences yeah, are, that and those di- are some of the differences. That differenti- differentiation, I know, is going to play a big part. Congressman Andy Levin of Michigan, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Uh, tomorrow, we're actually going to be hearing from Congresswoman Haley Stevens, so stick around for that. Uh, coming up in just a minute, we're going to dive further into the primaries. This is Bloomberg. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back to Sound On. This is Emily Wilkins filling in today for Joe Matthew. Well, we're going to stay for a little bit on the Democrat versus Democrat primary in Michigan's 11th district. Really interesting. You have re- you had redistricting go on this last year. It means that you've got a number of incumbents that are matched up against each other. These make for some of the most really interesting races. They tell you about the direction that the party is going. And this particular one uh, between Congressman Andy Levin, who we just had on, and Haley Stevens, who we'll have on tomorrow, is very going very heated. 11 doubling down on his negative interviews against Stephen, saying that he's just drawing a contrast. We actually have one of those election ads funded by J Street Action Fund supporting Levin and calling out Stevens uh, for some of, of her past moves. Haley Stevens is taking hundreds of thousands of dollars from a group that's supporting 109 Republicans who voted to overturn the 2020 election. Republican billionaires gave the group millions to defeat Democrats like Andy Levin. Even after we saw how Republicans nearly overturned the election on January 6th, Stevens keeps accepting the group's money and support. No campaign cash is worth abandoning. 
And so, yeah, that is an ad uh, noting the amount of funding that Haley Stevens has gotten from AIPAC. Uh, it's been a, a huge amount, but even at this point, the race is still expected to be a relatively close one, but you're seeing more of these negative ads go up. I want to bring in our all-star panel of Bloomberg Politics contributors, Jeannie Shianzano and Rick Davis. Uh, Rick, talk to me a little bit about the strategy that Andy Levin's using here. When do candidates go negative and what do they hope to achieve from that well it's uh it's it's really a timing against you know when voters are really looking at the election and it's usually you know 60 days before the uh the primary or, or general election and 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 some go early some as you know start all at the very beginning of the campaign start pounding away but uh in this case i mean you know these are two people who work together i thought your interview with Andy was kind of interesting in it like hey you know you guys did a lot together and your colleagues and there aren't that many instances where you know you you're pitting two existing colleagues together in one district because of redistricting and so uh you know but but look, this has been a pretty raucous campaign today, and and my guess is part of the, what decision you make when you go negative is that you're losing, and when you're losing and you go negative, that usually is an indication that this is the last ditch effort to try and repair the outcome of the election and for you. Yeah, I mean, you have this primary coming up at this point on, on August 2nd, so it's only a handful of weeks away at this point. Early voting has already started in, in the district, um, and so a number of people I know, I was actually in the district the other week doing some reporting on this race. A number of people, they've already requested their absentee ballots, and they've started to fill things out. So it's it's here. It's going on right now. Um, and Jeannie, I just wanted to come to just, just ask you a little bit about what this race is going to mean, because Haley Stevens and Andy Levin, they are pretty similar candidates. I mean, you can make the argument that Levin's a little bit more progressive, but if you look at their voting records, you look at their time in office, it's widely the same. So what are voters going to decide on here? Well, you know, I, I think that part of what they're getting is, you know, just listening to your interview with Levin is he is really trying to stress his progressive, uh, you know, kudos. And that is something that I think is going to be appealing to many people in the district. But, you know, I'm reflecting back as you were talking to Levin that many Democrats were utterly furious with him for not running in the 10th district where two thirds mm -hmm. of his constituents are. He chose to run against a colleague, as you've been talking about. And that has, you know, sort of, you know, listening to the ads that have been going on, it has gotten really, really ugly out there. And negative ads do work. People get information from them. So they're trying to stress the positive things about themselves, like his progressive tendencies, but also the negatives about their opponents. And those stick in the minds of voters. And that's something they'll take into account. I mean, Jeannie, if Levin does wind up pulling out a victory here on August 2nd, does that sort of say that the Democratic Party overall is moving to a more progressive place than it has in previous years? You know, I'm always hesitant to read that much into it. We have a lot of races this cycle, and I always think that the local issues matter. The local candidates matter. Constituent service, as you know, as somebody from Michigan, matters. So all those things are taken to account. But to your point, there is a good deal of energy on the progressive left. So if progressives are able to pull this out, particularly when they don't have as much funding as their challengers, that does say something, at least about which Democrats are going out in these primary elections. Unfortunately for our primaries, turnout is still fairly low. So we can't read too much into it by way of the general election or certainly a presidential race.
And Jeannie, I know you hit that nail on the head right there. It's turnout, turnout, turnout. Who can inspire the most people, particularly for, for this race? Uh, but since you did bring it up real quick, I am going to note that you do have Michigan's 10th district right next door. It does include part of Levin's old district. Um, and that one, you don't have an incumbent running in it. Uh, it's a district that leans a little bit Republican. And I'm wondering, Rick Davis, in, in the last uh, sort of 30 seconds we have right here, is it possible for Democrats to even win a district like that this year? Yeah, I don't think so. Um, you know, we've been talking about this uh, uh, district that uh, Levin's in, and that's actually probably gotten more Democratic. I mean, it was a Hillary Clinton district when she lost Michigan to Donald Trump. And so this is a this is a solid Democratic district. But I think anything short of this, 10 points out, and Republicans have a good chance of picking up some of these um, uh, weaker Democratic districts. Rick, Jeannie, thank you guys so much. I know that you'll be sticking around. We'll be talking with you in just a minute. But first, we're going to have a conversation with Greg Giroux about the Maryland primaries tomorrow. I'm Emily Wilkins. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1, to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. We are 113 days away from the November midterm elections, but if you live in Maryland, your election day is tomorrow, at least for the primaries, and there are some interesting ones out there. We're going to get a full breakdown of the races to watch up next with Bloomberg Government's Greg Giroux, our elections guru here. Well, right now, we are joined by Greg Giroux, Bloomberg Government election reporter and my number one person to turn to when I have any sort of questions on elections, on districts, on how things are playing out. Greg, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I just am going to toss this right over to you because you know this so well. What are the key races in Maryland to watch tomorrow? Yeah, well, Maryland's the only state holding a primary in the month of July, so it sort of has the the month to itself. And the top primary, I think, to watch is in the 4th Congressional District, which is an overwhelmingly Democratic area that includes most of Prince George's County and a small part of Montgomery County, which are but Washington, D.C. Uh, it's basically a two-person race in the Democratic primary between Donna Edwards, who was the congresswoman for that area from 2008 to 2017, and Glenn Ivey, who was Prince George's County's top prosecutor, uh, who sought this seat in 2016 and finished as the runner-up to the current congressman. Anthony Brown, who's uh, leaving it open to run for state attorney general. And Edwards and Ivy, I think, see eye to eye on policy. And so we're seeing a lot of outside money spent that pretty much magnify the the very small differences between the two candidates. But uh, whoever wins this primary, Emily, is uh, assured of winning uh, on November the 8th because it's such an overwhelmingly Democratic district. And we know we've talked about a lot about redistricting. Uh, how much did Maryland's maps actually change in the past year, and who's been affected by these changes? 
It was quite a story. I mean, Maryland was one of those states where uh, Democrats had full control of redistricting at the start, meaning they had they controlled the um, they controlled overwhelming majorities in the state legislature. There is a Republican governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan, but so Democratic is Maryland that the legislature could override uh, his veto, and that's what they mm-hmm. did in the very first map that they put forward that could have elected Democrats in all eight congressional districts in Maryland. Um, but a court, a state court in Maryland, struck that map down and told the legislature to draw a remedial map, which it did, and Larry Hogan signed, um, that favors, clearly favors Republicans in one district on the Eastern Shore, but also gives the party a shot at a second district, the sixth district that Democratic Congressman David Trone will be defending. So, um, it could have been eight to zero Democratic and a good good night for Democrats into the old the initial map. This map, I think it's a six to one to one map. You know, you've got one clearly Republican district and one more competitive district. Still, I mean that it favors Democrats, but Republicans are probably can expect more than they Republicans will probably do better than they could have expected otherwise. Yeah, I know that's the story for a couple different states like New York where that had its map finalized. It looked really great for Democrats. And then they're like, oh, nope, you need another map. And now you're seeing many more competitive seats. Uh, Greg, I know that, uh, as you mentioned, Maryland's kind of the big state with primaries in the month of July. Let's look ahead just a little bit to the month of August. What are the next couple interesting primaries coming up? We've talked a lot about Michigan's 11th district with Haley Stevens and Andy Levin. But what else is on your radar? There's quite a lot going on in August, uh, which is uh, might be a slow month legislatively. That's when members tend to get out of town. They don't want to be in D.C. in August, but you have a lot of elections going on back in their uh, home districts and states. Um, on August the 2nd, the first Tuesday uh, of the month, you have uh, five states voting, uh, Arizona, Kansas, uh, Michigan, Missouri, and Washington State. Um, I'd note that um, three of the House Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump over January 6th will be defending their seats on that date. Um, you have um, in Michigan, you have a, a Republican Congressman Peter Meyer from the Grand Rapids area as a primary challenge. The Democrats are also uh, contesting that seat in November. And then in Washington state, uh, you have a uh, Jamie Herrera Butler in the third district in the southwestern part of the state. And then in the kind of central Washington, you have um, Dan Newhouse, who also voted to impeach Trump. He'll be uh, defending his seat. Uh, Washington uses a, what's known as a top two primary where everyone runs on one ballot. So um, you need to finish better than third to avoid getting bounced in the primary. And, and that's been difficult for some of those Republicans who did vote to impeach Trump. I mean, of that group, I know a number of them have decided to retire. Uh, but then I believe you saw uh, Tom Rice down in South Carolina. He lost his primary pretty badly. And most of it is just because, you know, he has that conservative record, but he voted to impeach Trump. And, and, and that seemed to be enough. That was. And then in uh, California, a Republican Congressman David Valadeo uh, narrowly advanced uh, in his primary out there. Um, Trump didn't really intervene in that race, I think maybe because of uh, Kevin McCarthy, who's a neighbor's a district that uh, Valadeo has, may have uh, prevailed upon the former president to stay out of that race. But uh, Valadeo is probably the only Republican who could win that district in November. Uh, so, yeah, 10 of the 10 Republicans voted to impeach Trump. Uh, Six of them were seeking re-election. Four of them decided to retire. So we've had uh, two of them had to go through the have had to go through the crucible of of primaries, and then you've got four left. Uh, three, as we mentioned, on uh, August the second, and then uh, the last one is the biggest one, probably of them all, on August the sixteenth. Uh, Liz Cheney in Wyoming. 
Yeah, that one is going to be particularly interesting. Is there any chance at this point that that Liz Cheney actually winds up pulling out a victory here? It's really hard to see just based on the polling. I mean, polling shows are well behind, um, and it seems like the um, the the anti-Cheney vote has coalesced around one candidate, Harriet Hageman, who is the choice of uh, former President Trump. Um, if there had been, say, four or five serious candidates who could split the anti-Cheney vote and allow her to win with a plurality, I mean, that would that would certainly benefit her. But because the uh, most of the anti-Cheney vote will be will accrue to Harriet Hageman, I mean, that's that's not a good sign for for Cheney. Yeah, it's going to definitely certainly be a difficult race for her. I know you were tweeting out today uh, some of the folks who have donated to her, and it's really eye-popping to see uh, so many of her colleagues have donated to her opponent, uh, Harriet Hageman. Greg, we've only got about 30 seconds left, so I'm going to put you on the spot here with a really short answer. New York primaries are also coming up. What's the one race to watch? The member versus member matchup between Jerry Nadler and Carolyn Maloney, two 30-year incumbents who both chair committees. Uh, they are they are forced into a just into a uh, into an incumbent versus incumbent uh, face off. That's the top Boom. to watch. Boom, Greg Giroux, Bloomberg Government. This is Bloomberg. Thanks so much. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork, and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. This is Emily Wilkins in today for Joe Matthew. Well, Democrats are mad. They're mad at Joe Manchin. We heard from Congressman Andy Levin at the top of this hour, who is he's venting his frustration, and he's really not the only one. After Manchin uh, said on Friday that he would not support climate or tax provisions inside of a larger reconciliation package. If you're wondering what that reconciliation package is, that's that Build Back Better thing that we were all talking about a couple months ago. It looked like Democrats were going to be able to get something done that did include climate, that did include tax. And then on Friday, Manchin said no, uh, that that he would not be able to support it at that time. Uh, Senator Bernie Sanders had a tough critique of his West Virginia colleague on ABC's This Week. Problem was that we continue to talk to Manchin like he was serious. He was not. This is a guy who is a major recipient of fossil fuel money. 
Joined now by Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Jeannie, is this anger warranted? You know, the Democratic anger at Joe Manchin is uh, frustrating to some of us, and I include myself in that, in part because they started out with a bill at $3.5 trillion. I mean, let me just stress that, $3.5 trillion. And if you're Bernie Sanders, it was $6 trillion. It was, thank you very much, in a 50-50 Senate. Nobody could explain what was in it. It was large. It was, you know, a massive expansion of the social safety net. And so there was no way it was going to pass. You and I have talked about this. And I, this morning, woke up optimistic about Democrats. If you told me they could get two bills passed the summer before the 2022 midterm, saving prescription drug, saving money on prescription drugs and a CHIPS bill, that's a big win for Democrats. I don't know why they just don't take it, you know, applaud themselves, clap themselves on the back and move forward. They're frustrated, but they're frustrated and they're they're venting at Joe Manchin. And, you know, the House wasn't assured to pass something that big. Look at the people who wouldn't have done anything without a change in salt, for example. So, you know, to me, it's there's a big win to be had here for two big bills in the summer before a really tough midterm election. They should be happy. Jeannie, a lot of optimism there. Uh, Just also noting, because I don't think we've actually said it yet on this show. So at this point, what this reconciliation bill would do is that it would allow uh, Medicare to to negotiate drug prices, in theory, lowering those cost of those drugs and uh, extend enhanced Medicare subsidies for two years. Uh, Rick, how badly do Democrats actually need to get this done at this point just those two items yeah i think just those two items i mean they've been promising prescription drug relief for a long time and they're in a majority in the house senate and the white house and so if they don't deliver it it'll be a pretty abject failure for them and the aca um subsidy issue is is a time bomb i mean it's a huge number and it affects 13 million americans and it's it's a flaw in the law that that that, that you really do need this subsidy to make insurance companies willing to write the policies and and the reality is if they don't do it it's going to have a huge backlash with 13 million of what i would argue probably are the majority of those are their voters so they're going to do a lot of damage to their base if they don't deliver on these two items yeah, and certainly many people, when they look at uh, their insurance payments for health care, they, they would certainly be feeling this if Democrats cannot get something passed. Uh, Jeannie, I, I know that you think that Democrats just need to celebrate this as a win, but when I was in Michigan talking to voters the other week, I did have a number of them say, you know, Democrats promised all this stuff in the bill. They promised child care tax credits and pre-K education and all of these other items, and they're not getting it done. And there was frustration there. I mean, if Democrats hurt themselves by by over promising and, and under delivering Yes, in one word, they overpromised in a 50-50 Senate, and, and Joe Biden knew it. And I think the strategy here, it was an abject failure. They should not have overpromised and underdelivered. You know, you're talking about the prescription drugs, the ACA subsidies. That will be the largest health care bill in years. It's those health care bills that mattered to voters in 2018. It's, you know, it's why the Democrats were able to capture the House. This could be a big moment for Democrats. Democrats, I understand there's a lot more that people want, but when inflation is high as it is, that is not something that's going to happen. And so, yes, they overpromised and underdelivered, and voters have a right to be frustrated, but they also will be happy if they get this part of this bill done. 
Since we're speaking on voters, I, I do have to, of course, touch on uh, one of the number one issues on voters' minds at this moment, which is the price of gas. A White House Council of Economic Advisors, Jared Bernstein, spoke to Bloomberg Television earlier today about the Biden administration's plan to tackle inflation and the oil crisis. This president has pledged to do all he can to ensure that we have an ample supply uh, of oil to uh, ease inflationary pressures, particularly uh, at the pump. And so uh, his release of the strategic uh, reserves, 240 barrels when you include our uh, global partners, are already in the system. And he continues to push to ensure an ample global supply. Rick, I just want to get a general sense at this point. I mean, how much are gas prices going to factor into this election? I know that they're pretty high, but there's certainly many other things going on right now. Yeah, they're they're pretty high, but they, they may have peaked. I mean, you know, in about half the states, it's now uh, uh, less than $4 a gallon. And so if it does continue to come down, it'll have a positive impact on people's attitudes. Uh, and, and I think that it's part of what has fueled this really negative public opinion of uh, the president and his administration. I mean, he's got the lowest polling ratings of any modern president at this point in his administration. And a lot of that is because of inflation. And the biggest driver behind inflation are these gas prices. I mean, Rick, following that logic, then, could we actually see a 180 happen here if gas prices come down low enough? Could Biden's approval rating go back up and and Democrats uh, have more of a chance to keep the House and expand in the Senate come November? Well, that's certainly the Democrats' hope, right, is that gas gas prices have peaked and and his approval rating has hit bottom. (laughs) And so if one can come down and the other can come up, they they, they stand a better chance in the November elections. But look, uh, there are a lot of other things contributing to inflation. I mean, you know, housing prices, food, these things continue to put pressure on the upward side. So uh, the reality is, even though they may make uh, progress on uh, gas prices, they, they may not make ultimately enough progress on inflation. And of course, that's what's biting American in the wallet right now. And Jeannie, I just want to get your take on, on this one. I mean, how closely are the gas prices going to be correlated uh, to how well Democrats and Republicans do come November? Well, the closest correlation for these midterms is going to be presidential approval, as you were just talking about. And that is closely correlated with inflation and certainly gas prices. So it is something, and that's why the president has been trying to focus on it, that, you know, can have a huge impact in these midterms. So, you know, historically, unfortunately, for the president and Democrats, you don't see much change in polling in this regard in the summer before moving into that mid-fall midterm election. But that aside, they're going to keep trying to address it. They're going to hope that they're able to move the needle on gas prices. But there's other factors here that can also help them. One big one would be if Donald Trump does what he is hinting on doing and announces he is going to run for president. That might be, in my view, the biggest boon for Democrats because because there's nothing that gets Democrats out than anger at Donald Trump. The idea he might run may get them out. And if this is a turnout election, that could help move the needle. Also, candidates in the Senate, you know, they're going to lose the House. They may hold on or pick up a bit in the Senate, the Democrats. And that would be because some of these Senate candidates are not candidates that are able to really, you know, really appeal to voters in these states. So we're looking at Georgia. We're looking at states like Pennsylvania. So those two factors. I think are really also going to potentially help Democrats.
We've also touched on a couple times the fact that there is another big piece of legislation that Democrats and Republicans are working on right now. This was supposed to be uh, the U.S.-China com- competitiveness bill. Right now, we have seen that really shrink. It, it's going to feel ironic to say shrink with the next sentence I'm going to say. It shrink down to f- only $52 billion for chips and semiconductors. Rick Davis, what sort of your takeaway from the fact that they're just moving this through? Is this something that's going to also help Democrats in in the midterms, or is this something that's really going to just raise all boats for incumbents? Yeah, Emily, it is pretty sad day when if it's not over a hundred billion dollars, we don't really take it too seriously. <laughs> uh, but this is a big uh, event. I mean, uh, basically, what Mansion has allowed to have happen is by scuttling most of this. Uh, reconciliation bill. He's starting to get a green light from Republican leadership in the Senate to move forward with this CHIPS Act, USICA, whatever you want to call it. And and that will be a bipartisan win. And most of the big wins in this administration have been bipartisan wins. And so uh, even though I think it helps the administration to get stuff done, probably more than Republicans, uh, it's not going to happen without Republican votes. And in this case, they'll have plenty of them. And Jeannie, last 30 seconds, I just wanted to see, are Democrats going to be harmed by the fact that so much of the things they were pushing to get into this bill now ultimately might not make it in the names of just doing semiconductors? No, I I, I think voters um, are not going to be as focused on what didn't get in there. I think it's better that they get this through. And as Rick said, there's bipartisan support for this. John Cornyn tweeting over the weekend, Republicans ready to move forward. Democrats should be as well. And Gina Raimondo, I think, deserves a lot of credit for pushing this, as she said big win for China if we don't get this done. So there's a lot of bipartisan support for pushing this through. Yeah, she was in Congress last week with a very similar message of urgency at this point. And we're going to start seeing the Senate vote on it. We could potentially see a House vote this week. Certainly something we're going to continue to cover probably tomorrow because I'm back and going to continue hosting Sound On. Uh, We'll have Haley Stevens with us. But right now, Jeannie Shanzano, Rick Davis, our excellent contributors. Thank you so much. Uh, See you again tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.